in the good old town of Meribara, there is a doctor. His name is Dr. Rob Carson. Uh, he's a good fellow. He was the uh, doctor on call the night our second daughter, Shiloh, was born. But uh, years before that, Dr. Carson did something that made international headlines. Uh, in 2009, a 12-year-old boy, Nicholas, uh, fell off his bike and sadly he wasn't wearing a helmet. Nicholas got up and was complaining of a headache. His parents took him to Maribor Hospital. Uh, one minute he was talking with Dr. Carson, the next minute he lost consciousness. Dr. Carson saw the signs of internal bleeding uh, in Nicholas's skull, which was placing pressure on Nicholas's brain. And Dr. Carson realised that he needed to act fast in order to relieve the pressure on Nicholas's brain or he would die. In that moment, what Dr. Carson needed was a neurological drill to drill a hole in Nicholas's skull to release blood and to release the pressure on Nicholas's brain. The Meribar Hospital did not have neurological drills. And there wasn't enough time to send Nicholas to a hospital that, that did. He would almost certainly die on the way. In that moment, Dr. Carson did something unorthodox and extremely gutsy. He said to the hospital staff, get me a Black & Decker. The hospital staff went to the maintenance room and they got a drill. A run-of-the-mill household drill like you might have in your shed. Dr. Carson then spoke to Nicholas's parents. He explained that Nicholas's life was hanging in the balance and he had one shot and one shot only to save his life. Dr. Carson admittedly is not much of a handyman, but he, uh, he used the household drill to bore a hole in Nicholas's skull. Dr. Carson then turned to the doctor assisting and asked him how to put the drill in reverse. Dr. Carson's brave actions worked. Nicholas's life was saved and he continues to live a healthy life to this day. Now I want you to imagine what it would have been like to be Nicholas's parents. You know, one minute you're at home living your normal life, the next thing you know you're on your way to the hospital with some concerns, the next thing you know a doctor is telling you that your boy is going to die unless he takes dramatic action. How would you be feeling in that moment? Would you be afraid? Today we're continuing our study in Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel is the shortest of the four Gospels with just 16 chapters. Mark gets right to the thick of the action of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, if you were to read two chapters of Mark's Gospel before you went to bed tonight, um, and if you read two chapters each night, starting tonight, you would finish Mark's Gospel next Sunday evening. The Bible is bread for daily living, it is not cake for special occasions, so I encourage you to be reading God's Word for yourself. Uh, last week we spent our time in Mark chapter 4, where we looked at four parables about sowing the seed of the Gospel. We're going to pick things up this week in the very next story, at the very end of Mark chapter 4, which says this, As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up, shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? 
But when Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. And then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man, they asked each other. Even the wind and waves obey him. Uh, Mark and Luke, in their Gospels, they describe this storm by using the Greek word lalilaps, which is the word that you would use to describe a hurricane. Matthew, in his Gospel, he describes the storm by using the Greek word seismos, which is the word that you would use to describe an earthquake. Uh, seismos is where you, we get the word seismology, the study of earthquakes. Matthew surely remembers the shaking of the waters and the shaking of the boat, and surely he was shaking in his sandals. One minute everything is fine. The next minute a fierce storm comes up out of nowhere. The parents of Nicholas had a storm come out of nowhere when he fell off his bike. There are no shortage of storms in our lives, and the followers of Jesus are not exempt from storms. The disciples get in a boat with Jesus. The trip is his idea, and yet the trip is far from smooth. The disciples are panicked, and Jesus is sleeping. But a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. Could you sleep during a hurricane? Would you doze off during an earthquake? It's raining, it's pouring, the Son of God is snoring. <laughs> Jesus is sleeping, the disciples are shouting, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to drown? And Jesus asks the disciples a question in this passage. Why are you afraid? What sort of question is that? Why are you afraid? Why wouldn't they be afraid? I mean, would you go down to the indoor pool and ask all of the swimmers, why are you wet? Would you have the nerve to go down to the botanical gardens on a Saturday morning and stand at the finish line of Castlemaine Park Run and ask all of the runners, why are you tired? Isn't it obvious why they're afraid? There's a hurricane outside. There's an earthquake. There's a seismos going on. Waves are breaking into the boat. The boat is filling with water. And yet Jesus asks, why are you afraid? And is there any chance that he might be asking you the same question this morning? Jesus wakes up and brings calmness to the quaking. He says, silence, be still. Everything is now completely calm, except for the disciples who are absolutely terrified. And if they were frightened by the storm, well, they ain't seen nothing yet. Mark 5, when Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Mark says that this man was demon-possessed, that he lives in a graveyard, that he breaks chains, that he cuts himself with stones, that he was howling. Luke's Gospel adds that he was screaming and the detail that he was naked. And the disciples thought the storm was scary. 
Jesus commands the demons who hold this man in bondage to leave. The man is liberated and set free. Mark 5.15, a crowd soon gathered around Jesus and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane and they were all afraid. They had become so accustomed, so accustomed to his bondage that his freedom left them terrified. Verse 21, Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, my little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her, heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for, for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors. Over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. Um, according to Jewish law, in Leviticus chapter 15, this woman was religiously unclean. She's not meant to be in this crowd. She's not meant to be touching people. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe, for she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you, how can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the, the frightened woman, trembling at the realisation of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. Now, this woman has suffered at the hands of men for 12 years. For 12 years she has been ripped off and taken advantage of. She's broken Old Testament law and now Jesus is looking around for who touched him. It's not surprising that she's frightened. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, your suffering is over. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. And Jairus went to see Jesus because she was dying. Like Nicholas's parents in Maribyrnong, the life of a child was hanging in the balance. She's just 12 years old and now she's gone. Hope has been snuffed out. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Which brings us back to the question Jesus asked the disciples, why are you afraid? If your attention is fixated upon the wind and the waves, if your focus is on the frightening circumstances you are facing, then you have every reason to be scared. The disciples in the boat paid more attention to the wind and the waves than they did to the words of Jesus. What did Jesus say to them? Back in Mark 4, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go to the other side. Jesus said, let's go to the other side. He didn't say, let's go and drown in the middle of the lake. If only they'd paid more attention to his words than they did to the wind and the waves. You would be significantly less fearful if you paid more attention not to the storm, but to the one who's in the storm with you. What you believe about God matters. Uh, in Genesis 
chapter 1, on day 2 of creation, God makes the seas. And God said, let water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Uh, In John chapter 1, John talks about Christ being the eternal word. John writes, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. So Jesus was there in the beginning, creating the world. On day two, he created the seas. Therefore, the seas do not frighten him. He's the author of the wind and the waves. He's not worried by them. If the disciples had realized that the author of creation was in their boat, if they realized the one who made the winds and the oceans was in their boat, do you really think they'd be sweating the seismos that's going on? The fact that the disciples are afraid simply demonstrates they don't really know who Jesus is yet. They don't really know who's in the boat. That's why they say, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. If they really knew who Jesus was, they wouldn't be afraid. That's why Jesus asks them the question, why are you afraid? And maybe he's asking you the same question. Why are you afraid? Don't you know who I am? While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Under normal circumstances, that would be reason for great despair. But who is standing with Jairus? None other than Jesus, the author of life himself. And if Jairus had realized how powerful Jesus was, if he knew that Jesus was the author of life, he wouldn't be afraid. That's why Jesus urges him to believe and God is urging you to believe urging you to believe that in the middle of your storm there is an all-powerful God with you in the midst of it and he's not afraid of anything if you really knew who was in the storm with you you wouldn't be afraid now the woman in Mark chapter 5 sadly she is not named and that is a shame because she does better than Jairus the synagogue leader she does better than the disciples because she thought if I just touch his clothes I will be healed she knows who Jesus is she believes that he has the authority over sickness she gets what the disciples haven't got yet she gets what Jairus doesn't get yet I mean Jesus had to say to Jairus don't be afraid just have faith Jesus had to say to the disciples, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? But to this courageous, believing woman, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. This week, were you conscious that God was with you in your storms? Did you remember his great power? Did you remember his many promises? I'm going to show you some stories from Mark chapter 6. The first one is for those who are scared to share their faith. And Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals, 
but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a town, stay there until you leave that town. If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus is sending out his disciples on a mission trip in groups of two. Uh, In Matthew's recount of the same story, he includes these instructions. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of God has come. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And Jesus is handing out some pretty daunting instructions. Right, boys, get out there, heal the sick, raise the dead, drive out demons, see if you can pick up a loaf of bread on the way home. These are daunting instructions the disciples have been given. How would you be feeling if you were given the same instructions? In verse 7, it says that Jesus gave his disciples authority over impure spirits. Now, when Jesus confronted impure spirits, sickness left, demons fled, the dead stopped being dead anymore. And Jesus is giving his authority to his disciples. He's not sending them out alone. He's empowering them with his authority. Matthew 28. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth, in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus has authorized you to go and make disciples, to proclaim his good news in every street and every city in the world. God is with you as you share your faith with your family and friends. All of heaven is cheering you on. His Holy Spirit is empowering you. You don't need to be afraid to share the reason for the hope that you have. Jesus is with you. His Holy Spirit will help you. And even if people reject you, he never will. You don't need to be scared to talk about Jesus. The next story is for those who are worried about a lack of provision. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said, you feed them. Is Jesus asking his disciples to whip something up for several thousand people on short notice? This seems pretty daunting. With what? They asked, we'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. And the disciples, they're so bewildered by this request, they've whipped out their pocket calculators and they've started doing the sums. And they respond to Jesus with the facts. And Jesus isn't looking for the facts. Jesus is looking for faith. He's looking for their belief in who he is. Uh, In Numbers chapter 11, in the Old Testament, God's people have been complaining. They've been complaining to God about the food that he's been giving them. Uh, God has been providing his people with manna to eat. But this isn't good enough for God's people in Numbers 11. They want to eat meat and they whinge and they whine about it. Um, And so in Numbers 11, God says this to Moses. And say to the people, purify yourselves, for tomorrow you will have meat to eat. You were whining, and the Lord heard you when you cried, Oh, for some meat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will have to eat it. 
And it won't just be for a day or two, or for five, or ten, or even twenty. You will eat it for a whole month until you gag and are sick of it. For you have rejected the Lord who is here among you, and you have whined to him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? Uh, now, Moses has a, a bit of a problem trying to work out how God is going to feed uh, all these people meat for a whole month. But Moses responded to the Lord, There are 600,000 foot soldiers here with me, and yet you say, I will give them meat for a whole month? Even if we butchered all of our flocks and herds, would that satisfy them? If we caught all the fish in the sea, would that be enough? Then the Lord said to Moses, Has my arm lost its power? Now you will see whether or not my word comes true. Verse 31. Now the Lord sent a wind that brought quail from the sea and let them fall all around the camp for miles. In every direction there were quail flying three feet above the ground. So the people went out and caught quail all that day and throughout the night and all the next day too. There was a time in Scripture when God fed more than 600,000 people for a month. If God could feed 600,000 then, why not 5,000 now? Jesus wasn't looking for facts. He was looking for faith. If the disciples understood who Jesus was, they wouldn't be worried about provision. And you shouldn't be worried either. Finally, we're going to finish where we started, with the disciples being scared in a boat. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida, uh, while he sent the people home. After telling everyone goodbye, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Late that night, the disciples were in the boat in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on the land. He saw they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. He intended to go past them. But when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking he was a ghost. They were all terrified when they saw him. But Jesus spoke to them at once, don't be afraid. He said, take courage, I am here. Then he climbed into the boat and the wind stopped. They were totally amazed. I want to draw your attention to uh, verse 48 where it says that... Uh, he intended to go past them. Why did Jesus change his plans? Because they called out to him in their fears. I mean, the disciples are fearful and they get many things wrong, but at least when they're afraid, they call out to the right person. Are you calling out to God in your fears? Are you being self-reliant? Or are you relying on him? And so Mark 6 finishes with Jesus in the boat telling his disciples, don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. Don't be afraid, disciples, because God is present in this problem. He's in the boat with you. Let's pray. First Peter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. And God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here this morning. I pray right now that they will reach out to you with their fears and their worries. Thank you that you are present in their problems, that you're in the boat with them. And I pray 
that we all might have a revelation of who you are, that we might know your power and your presence with us this week. I thank you that nothing can separate us from your love, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Nothing in all creation can separate us from your love. I thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name, amen.